Hi everyone, welcome to Sunday Night Live Listen. I have a real opportunity for you. Uh, right now you're going to be blessed with Don Stewart. Here's the deal. Uh, we had our prophecy conference last weekend and um, we only have two messages that we are authorized to show on YouTube. The last one was last Sunday. The first one was last Sunday with Joe Pettick and this one right now. We have no other messages we can show from the conference on YouTube, just these two things. And right now, listen, you are going to be super blessed. I loved it. I got to sit in with this message with Don. It is one of the best messages I have ever heard from Don Stewart. You're going to enjoy it. And uh, God bless you guys. Here's Don Stewart. Please welcome, wait, wait for it, wait for it. Elvis has arrived in the building. Please welcome the real Don Stewart. Elvis, how do you like that? That was great. That was great. You know what was funny? I was just doing an interview with James in between, and it's great doing one with him because I said, what do you think, James? And he does the whole thing. He so, does. He does. Great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he, no, he's fabulous. Yes, so, he yeah. does. By the way, how many books do you? How many different books do you have out there? Okay, out there, just just twenty four. Twenty four different. 20, yeah, not twenty four books. Twenty four different 24 books. Twenty four different titles. Yeah. Twenty four different titles. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's part of when we have 30, 34 in print right now. I just brought twenty four, and so uh, yeah, and for sixty one on the website, like we've said. So sixty one. Mm -hmm. This is phenomenal. And counting. And and counting. So this one is is the Bible the ultimate source of authority. Does no, it have no, no. the final oh, oh, say on all yeah, matters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my, that's my uh, latest one, actually. And then look up a timeline of 50 last days events. I refer to this often, by the oh, way, good, just good, so you good. know. Okay, let me take it back. I steal from it often. I mean, I borrow from it often. <laughs> Listen, you have uh, your full 45 minutes, even okay. though we are starting a few minutes late. We're okay because we get a couple Probably. more breaks anyways. Okay, good. Sounds good. So, and thank there'll you. be a clock that'll give you 45. Okay, so you're you good. Some. All right. Thank okay. you, Tom. Tom Hughes, everybody give him a hand. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, it's nice to be back with you. I'm going to be here after I talk the rest of the day at the book table. If you haven't met me, I'd like to meet you. I'll be, if you have any Bible questions, I like talking to people. I like mingling. I'm, and so please feel free to ask and uh, uh, we enjoy um, spending time with you. I know a lot of you have come from a long way and I'm sure you've been blessed by the various speakers and we trust that um, this one here won't be too bad either, the one I'm about to do. All right. Uh, the one I did last night or yesterday was basically a book putting in perspective the gospel. The gospel is what we're all about. And the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It is what the Bible says in the book of Revelation. And we mentioned the fact that uh, Bible prophecy, last day's Bible prophecy, is a means to an end. And we talked about the fact that there is the ancient commentators on the Bible uh, saw certain things happening in their day, but not very many compared to what we're seeing right now. I like to use the analogy in the old time, you know, we, they had to live by faith. Literally, like Tom teaches, all we have to do to today is open our eyes, right, Tom? It's so much there. Uh, he, James, and I text each other every morning, and we have so many stories that are coming out that are just fulfilling exactly what Scripture does have to say. All right, again, we call this one indisputable proof that the Bible is God's Word. All right, what do you do with a book 
that has uh, 66 books, but at least 40 plus, many different human authors. And they're writing about the future, the future unknowns, things that haven't happened yet. And like we mentioned yesterday, I'm going to do this verse again today, Isaiah 48, 6 in the New English Translation, which the Lord says, when you look at it, you have heard, now look at all the evidence. Will you not admit that what I say is true? So as we look at the totality of Scripture, the big picture, we need to understand where Bible prophecy fits in consistently with a biblical pattern of events from the very beginning showing the Bible is the Word of God. Now we're going to give three different examples of this, so three different lines of evidence today that are a little bit different what we talked about yesterday. The, and, and what I talk about is patterns. You see a pattern in this, and so we want to pay attention to the pattern. The first pattern is the past testimony of God's work in history, 50 Biblical Prophecies Made and Fulfilled. That's one of the books I've written. Again, educatingourworld.com. It's a free download. You can get that one. I, I don't, I'm ran out of them here, but uh, basically, here's what we do. We start in the Garden of Eden, the prophecies God made right after Adam and Eve sinned, to the end of the scripture, and we talk about 50 specific prophecies made that have already been fulfilled in history. Now that piggybacks on the first book of the series called God Wants Us to Know the Future, and it's an introduction to Bible prophecy. In the first book, it's the claims of Scripture, that God claims to know the future, He claims to tell us the future ahead of time, that uh, so we don't have to wonder what's going to take place. But then the second book, this one here, is the evidence. So the first line of evidence are the predictions that have already been fulfilled in the past, and let's not forget that. Uh, one of the ones we use is one, uh, it's, it's when you go to Israel, and again, like we talked about yesterday, if we ever get to go back again, one of the things I love to do with when we're around the Sea of Galilee is to take people to a couple of really interesting places. First, you go to Capernaum. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. It's got the ugliest church in the world right there that was built. It looks like a spaceship above Simon Peter's house. And if you've been there, it's just a bunch of ruins today, nothing there but ruins. We talk about, you know, this was the Jesus headquarters, Matthew 9-1, uh, Capernaum, it's called his home, his headquarters, not his hometown, but when he did his public ministry there, but nothing but ruins. Then I say, okay, let's move next to, and I tell the guide, we're going to go to Corazine. The guide looks at me, uh, Corazine, you sure you want to take people there? Yeah, please. Well, the bus rides a few minutes, we go to Corazine. There's nothing but ruins there, nothing. Everybody's taking pictures of the ruins in there, Corazine. I said, okay, keep taking your shots. Now, I want to ask you something. What did we see at, um, let's say, excuse me, what did we see at Capernaum? They said we saw a bunch of ruins in an ugly church. Okay, right. What did we see at Chorazine? Uh, well, just a bunch of ruins. What did we see at Bethsaida? Well, you haven't taken us to Bethsaida. That's right, because we don't know to this day the exact location of Bethsaida. Why is this important? because the Lord Jesus Christ did most of his miracles in the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, and they rejected him. So what did he do? He pronounced judgment on each of these three cities, on these three, around the Sea of Galilee. And what do we see? Ruins, ruins, and more ruins. Two ruins in one place we're not even sure where it exists yet. There is a fourth city around the Sea of Galilee, the city of Tiberias. John's Gospel talks about Jesus being there. He didn't pronounce judgment against it, and thank God for that, because that's where we stay when we stay in Israel, because there are hotels there, right? Uh, at least we saved us that city, okay? Now, so here's the question. Hmm, four cities around the Sea of Galilee. He pronounces judgment on three of them. Two of them are in ruins. The third, we don't even know where it's at. The fourth, when he says nothing, it's still there, okay? 
Is that a lucky guess? Well, if that's all we had, you maybe could argue that. But pattern after pattern after pattern of the different biblical prophecies uh, over and over again. So the first thing here is the past prophecies already fulfilled. So what I would very much encourage you to do, again, go to the website, educatingourworld.com, and under the uh, Bible Prophecy Last Days section, it's called God's Work in History, 50 prophecies, Biblical Prophecies Made and Fulfilled, and you see the documentation. But it's not just 50 predictions and that's it. Each one has a number of components to it. In the fall of Nineveh, there are something like 14 different specific prophecies that were fulfilled. The prediction of the rise of King Cyrus, something like eight or nine of them. So there's over 100 specific things in the past that Scripture has already predicted, and the fulfillment has happened. So the first line of evidence is past predictive prophecy that's, that's fulfilled. That's why we said in Isaiah 48, 6, God could say 2,700 years ago, look at all the evidence, won't you admit that what I say is true? Now there's another line of evidence, and this one to me is one of the most fascinating. We talked about this yesterday. When I was um, down for you know a month plus with the Chinese Communist Party coronavirus, I thought you know I couldn't I couldn't speak, but at least I could write. So I finished my book, Ancient Mysteries of the Bible Solved. Now, please, please, please do yourself a favor if you're watching online, take the time to download that book, and if you want to print it out, you know, have at it, do it, because this is one of the most important books I think I've ever written. Now, let me tell you why. It documents another pattern, just like the pattern of fulfilled prophecies, that everyone needs to know about. In a nutshell, here's what's going on. Until about 150 years ago, 150, 200 years ago, the various events in past history were unknown to whether they happened or not. You have some, you know, ancient text, you have, a, you know, few people quoted this, few quoted that, but there's no evidence. How do we know that Moses existed? How do we know that the patriarchs existed? How do we know, you know, that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? How do we know, you know, um, Jonah uh, existed? And uh, specifically the Old Testament here. And so... With a, the rise of archaeology in the last 150 to 200 years, buried cities have now been discovered, things have been found, and that were you know, never assumed to be found. And so what we do, I call it mysteries. A mystery in this case is something that was a question mark, whether it had been fulfilled or not. And we look at 12 specific ones, such as Abraham and the patriarchs, Moses and the, you know, the exodus from Egypt, uh, Joshua and the entrance into the promised land, the times of the kings. And then we talk about, we talk about Jonah also. But we also talk about three specific prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Daniel, did they exist like the Bible says they did? And we look at the evidence, the evidence from outside of scripture, and it is literally mind-boggling, literally mind-boggling. I had no idea so much was there. So what we find over and over again is a pattern. The Bible mentions something. The Bible talks about an event people and what happens. Uh, history tells us, you know, we find out from uh, archaeology now, the name shows up somewhere. I'm going to give you one interesting example of this. We could give many, and we're going to come, uh, we're going to make some conclusions with it too. And Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah, amongst other things, listed six people who lived at the time of the first temple when it was destroyed and were intimately involved in the events that took place. Three were from Judah, and three were from Babylon, a man named Gamaria. Now, most people won't remember Gamaria. He was actually a hero, Jeremiah 36, 25. He's the one that urged King Jehoiachin not to burn the scroll. Remember the king burnt the scroll that Jeremiah wrote, and Jeremiah had to write another one? Well, he was a hero. He, his, he was mentioned there in Jeremiah 30, 
625 as someone who was um, urging the king not to burn the scroll. Another man named Gedaliah was a bad guy. He's mentioned in Jeremiah 38, one, uh, chapter 38, verses 1, 4, and 6. He was involved in tossing Jeremiah into the well for the purpose of putting him to death. Remember, they want to kill Jeremiah because he's saying Babylonians are going to take the, you know, the city, destroy the temple, and that sort of thing. You're going to go into captivity. No, no, the false prophets are saying it isn't going to happen. So this person wanted to put Jeremiah to death, Gedaliah. He's mentioned there. And there's another person along with Gedaliah in the same verse named Jehuchel. Well, actually, no J in Hebrew. Jehuchel, son of Shemaliah. He was also uh, in, you know, very... Uh, personally involved in tossing Jeremiah into the prison, Jeremiah 38, 1, 4, and 6. So he mentions these people. And then three from Babylon, a man named Nebo Sarkisian, who was a high official, Jeremiah 39, 3, who with the other officers of the king of Babylon set up quarters in the middle gate after the city walls had been broken through when the destruction of the first temple happened. He's named by name. Another person called Nergal Sherezer, Jeremiah 39, 13 to 14. He's the, the scripture informs us he was the man who was instrumental in releasing Jeremiah from the courtyard of the guard when he was held prisoner. And then we have a man named Nebuzaradan, the captain of the royal guard who supervised the burning of the holy city. All right, six people named here, throwaway names here, minor officials, although they were involved somewhat in the destruction of the first temple. You know what's fascinating? The three from Judah. Uh, every single one has now, their name has now been found uh, that they actually did exist. And these little, they're called bullets, B U L L E A, to pronounce, anyway, bullet, uh, I don't remember their E A. They're clay packs, like a seal, royal seal. Two of them in the 20th, 21st century were discovered around the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Very, very small. They, they were excavating it near the temple. And what did they find? They found the exact names of these people that Jeremiah mentioned, 2,700 years of age, about as big as your thumb, if that, you know, there. And the names were exactly the names as found in the book of Jeremiah, all three of them. Now, how about the Babylonian officials? Each one of these officials that we mentioned, that Jeremiah mentions, are names that have been found in Babylonian records as doing exactly what the Bible said they did. So that's just one example of many. So let's take a step back. Hmm. So Jeremiah gets exactly right the names of these three minor officials, the names of these three Babylonian leaders who were instrumental in destroying the first temple. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Jeremiah had to be there to know this sort of thing. You would know, I mean, these are, these are throwaway names for the most part, particularly the, the Jude, officials of Judah. And yet their names show up not only in ancient records, but also they show up in scripture. It tells us this, that biblical history is continually to be confirmed by these minor discoveries that show us even in the most minute things, the Bible is correct. So if he can accurately record the names of secondary officials, how much more is he accurately recording the big events that's there? But one other thing, and this is the thing we emphasize in the book, the last part of it is these three uh, prophets, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel and Isaiah. There's evidence that each of them existed at the time where the Bible says they did. Well, if that's the case, then there is a God who, is, who supernaturally tells us the future. Because Jeremiah, the man that mentioned these names, predicted a 70-year Babylonian captivity, 
and a return from the 70-year Babylonian captivity that happened just as the Bible says. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, of course, predicted things in the future that literally came to pass, as did Daniel. So the point we make at the conclusion of the book is this. Say, look, not only do we have the evidence, the pattern of evidence that these three people existed at the time Scripture says they did, but because they predicted future unknowns, only events that you know God himself, an almighty, all-knowing God could know, then they must have been speaking or inspired by the eternal God. So you kind of got a double whammy here. The fact that you know, the evidence is there for their existence, number one, shows the Bible is correct in that. But then number two, if it's correct in that, well, what about the predictions they make? Well, the predictions came to pass. So they didn't happen after the fact is what we're arguing. They happened before they took place. And so one of the great testimonies in Scripture is the fact that when the Bible records certain things, Abraham, the patriarchs, uh, the story of Joseph, what do we have? We have evidence that these people lived at the precise time where the Bible said they did. Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt by his brothers for 20 shekels of silver. That was the going rate at the time that Joseph lived, according to Scripture. But because of inflation and other things, it changed over history. But at the precise time he was sold, 20 shekels was the going rate. Someone had to be there at the time to know it. If it was written several centuries later, they wouldn't have said 20 shekels of silver was made up. So over and over again, this is the thing that just literally blew my mind. There were patterns, patterns that we see for each of these biblical events, these people, that shows that they knew what they were talking about. The writers knew what they were talking about history. So after a while, you have to ask yourself, these are the luckiest guys in the world. Or maybe they were actually on the scene. And the point is, as we have the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy you know, in the past, we also have the pattern of the events that are recorded and now that we have archaeology digging things up, showing up to be true. So that is a second line of evidence. So in other words, not only the predictions are true, but also when certain people are named, more and more the discoveries are found that these people did exist, just like Scripture said, and so the unbelievers have to uh, you know, say, well, yeah, there is something to it. Now, as they say, there is more, and this is now pattern three. Pattern one, prophecies fulfilled in history. Pattern two, ancient mysteries of the Bible solved. Pattern three, and this is the emphasis in this conference, the Bible predicts that we can understand what is taking place right now in the world. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. This is the introduction of a talk I gave a few weeks ago here at this church on a Sunday morning, and uh, and we're going to make the same emphasis here. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, and then verses 8 to 10, there are 11 specific things that Daniel, uh, that, you know, the Lord speaks through Daniel to, that we can understand and that we can know. 11 important things we need to know. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, okay, it says this, At that time, Michael the great prince who watches over your people will arise there will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nation's beginning up to that time. But at that time, your own people, all those names who are found written in the book, will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting abhorrence. But the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse, and those bringing many to righteousness will be like the stars forever. Now, here we go. But you, Daniel... Close up the words, close up these words, and seal the book until, get this little word until here, if you like underlining in your Bible, until the time of the end, many will dash about and the knowledge will increase. All right, 
from this, these four verses, there are seven things we need to note right here at the beginning. First of all, the events he is speaking of will take place at that time. At that time means the time of the end when the kingdom of God comes to earth. So this is the subject Daniel's doing at that time. These events are going to take place, number one. Okay, so we know what the time frame here is. It's not return from Babylon. It's a time of when God's kingdom comes to earth. Number two, Daniel's people will have a time of great distress that has never happened before. Uh, you know, a distress on his people. Matthew 24, 21, uh, Jesus calls this the great tribulation, which is the second half of the final seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. It's a time, according to Jesus and according to Daniel, never before seen in history, never will again, a time of great distress. And unless the Lord intervenes, Humanity would destroy itself. So again, it's at the time, the time of the end, which this conference is all about, what we're talking about. Okay, number three, after this time, the second coming of Christ, which brings God's kingdom to earth and beyond, the dead will rise. Now, the dead rise in stages. Christ was the first fruit. Those at the rapture of the church will be next when the dead in Christ rise. Then at his second coming, uh, there'll be another group that rises uh, also. I wrote a book called Resurrection and Judgment that talks about all that, the different phases of judgment. So Daniel talks about this. The dead will rise. All right. Now, number four, and this is crucial. Their destinies, when they rise, will be in one of two places, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting abhorrence or everlasting contempt. So this, again, is the prediction. When the resurrection of the dead comes, everyone who is dead will rise on different stages now, not all at once. Uh, some will everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. But then Daniel number 5 is told to close up the book until the time of the end. Well, why? Well, number 6. Many will want to know what's going on, will try to know, but they won't understand. When it says many will run to and fro, that's a Hebrew idiom meaning many will try and find the answer, but they won't be able to get the answer to these things. It won't make sense until the time of the end. It did not make sense to Daniel, but it will at the time of the end. So um, many will want to know, they'll try to understand, but they won't understand. And then the knowledge of these things will increase at the time of the end. Knowledge of Bible prophecy, knowledge of the book of Daniel, not knowledge per se, but knowledge of the book of Daniel, knowledge of Bible prophecy, it'll start making complete sense at the time of the end, when before you're thinking, man, this doesn't make sense yet. Daniel was told, you got to close it up until the time of the end. So now let's go to verse 8 through 10. And we continue. We're going to find four more things. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I said, sir, what will happen after these things? He said, go, Daniel, for these matters are closed and sealed. Here's the little word again. Until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made clean and refined, but the wicked will go on being wicked. None of the wicked will understand, though the wise will understand. All right, four more things we're going to learn from these verses. Number, uh, number eight, Daniel did not understand. He didn't get it. He said, I don't understand. Okay, and he asked a question about these things. Here's Daniel. He's given more information than any other person in the history of the world, arguably, except John from Revelation about the future. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. So again, it's emphasized, Daniel, we got to close up the book. They're sealed these things until the time of the end. Then the two final things that one of these should give you tremendous comfort. Number 10, at that time, none of the wise will understand. None of the wise, none of, excuse me, none of the wicked will understand at the time of the end. However, number 11, the wise will understand. 
So there'd be two groups of people at the time of the end, the wicked who will not understand and the wise who will understand. Who are the wise? Those are the ones that pay attention to last day's Bible prophecy because we're told specifically in this context, it's only in the last days, Daniel, you're not going to get it. A person living 300 years ago is not going to get it. Even 50 years ago is not going to get it. Only at the very time of the end, all these things will start making sense. And gang, that's the day you and I are living in right now. They all make sense. Isn't that amazing? So... Uh, now these are the specific these are the are the claims the Bible makes, but let me give you two specific predictions to show these why we know we're at the time of the end. All right, uh, number one, I became a Christian in March of 1970. I just had my 51st year anniversary of being a believer, and uh, what I uh, I started teaching fairly soon after about two or three years after I became a believer. You know, very simple teaching. I didn't know that much. But one of the things we did teach is last day's Bible prophecy. It was very popular in the 70s. And one of the passages that we've talked about here is Ezekiel 37, but particularly 38 and 39. The uh, invasion, the last day's invasion, it's not a battle, last day's invasion of Israel by a number of these nations where God gives them the whammy and uh, destroys them once they get into the promised land. And so as we're teaching this now in the 1970s, here's what we had to do. We had to list precisely what the Bible said. And here is going to be the lineup of the nations. All right. It was to nobody's surprise that the, the leader of this invading force would be, his title was Gog, G-O-G. He's not Mr. Gog or Gog Jones or Gog, Gog Smith. It's Gog is the title like Caesar, uh, Pharaoh, or Grand Poobah or something like that. Okay, he is the leader of this. He is from the place called Rosh. Rosh is a, is a word, I believe it's a proper name now, of a place at the time of Ezekiel that was the farthest north from Ezekiel and Babylon and from uh, the nation of Israel, and that would be modern-day Russia. The Septuagint, the Greek translation, the Hebrew Old Testament, translates it as a noun, Rosh. Not, you know, he's not a prince, because the na noun can mean prince in some context. It's a proper name. Now, it's modern-day Russia, not because it sounds like Russia. The derivation of the name is totally ir irrelevant to this, but we believe that this is the exact place. Willem Gesenius, who was the top Hebrew lexicographer in the 19th century, is not a Bible-believing Christian. He wrote uh, extensively the lexicon, the, the Hebrew dictionary at that time, the standard work. He had a page plus in his Latin uh, edition of that, arguing that Ross in, you know, Rosh in Hebrew is actually what is moder called modern-day Russia at that time. Not even a believer, not interested in last day's Bible prophecy, but that's what he concluded from that. Okay, the leader is from that. That's no real surprise with what the world's been like. But what we had to teach her at this time, the uh, nations that are going to invade with Russia include uh, Turkey and Iran. Betogarma and Gomer are terms that were used in the ancient world of what's modern-day Turkey. And uh, Persia, what is talked about in the scripture there in Ezekiel 38, is modern-day Iran. In fact, Iran is the Farsi word for Persia. It wasn't until 1935 it was changed. So you've got Russia, Iran, and Turkey would be part of the invading force. Okay, now, th they're the bad guys. The good guys now would be, or the people that, that don't par participate in the invasion are, are called Sheba and Dedan, which would be the modern-day Gulf states. And also we have Egypt, which is conspicuous by its absence, and also um, modern states like Jordan, which aren't mentioned at all. But again, since they're not part of the invading force, they're not involved in the least. Well, herein lies the problem. We were teaching this in the 1970s. The whole thing was reversed. 
the good guys are supposed to be the bad guys, and the bad guys are supposed to be the good guys. Iran was Israel's best friend in the 1970s. It was in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. If they weren't basically resupplied by the Iranians through the United States, they would not exist now as a country. Iran was the hero in the 1970s. Turkey was a place where the Israelis until recently took their vacations. Turkey, a member of NATO. Turkey is the first Muslim country that recognized the right for Israel to exist. So in the 1970s, when we're doing this, talking about an invasion with Iran, Russia, and Turkey, they said, wait a minute now. Iran's their best friend. Turkey, a member of NATO, recognized Israel's existence first. They're, you know, they're friend. They're friendly. The Shah of Iran's friendly that. And they're part of the bad guys. And then we look at the good guys. Saudi Arabia, okay, the Gulf states, these other places, you know, you've got Egypt, who is not going to be involved. In other words, they're considered a good guy. At least they're going to be neutral. These are the nations, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, that invaded, you know, that, that started the 1948 war, one minute after midnight. In other words, everything was wrong. The whole lineup was exactly wrong because the, the people on this side should have been on that side, on that side, and this side. So what do we say? Just give it enough time, and sooner or later, the lineup will be correct. Okay, remember, as we get to the time of the end, the wise will understand. Here we are in 2021, and what do we see? The precise lineup that Ezekiel mentioned is now specifically in place. The biggest enemies in Israel in the Middle East are Iran and Turkey. 1979, Iran became the Islamic State of Iran when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over, when the Shah was deposed. They've been sponsoring terrorism for 42 years now around the world. The best friend uh, became the worst enemy. Turkey, again, a member of NATO with his new man Erdogan, who's taken the lead. He, he sees himself as the sultan, the one who will bring together the old uh, Ottoman Empire that once, you know, literally millions of kilometers in the 19th century were under their control. It was a huge empire, and then after World War I, it basically dissolved. He wants to bring it back to its glory days. So starting in the year 2000 and onward, he started winning these elections, and now he's basically the dictator of Turkey. So what do we have? In the last couple of years, there have been events where in four different, four different meetings in three different capitals, one in Russia, one in Iran, and one in Turkey, who do we see? Vladimir Putin, leader of Russia, the Ayatollah, the leader of Iran, and, and Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, meeting in Ankara and Sharm el-Sheikh there, um, or Sochi, excuse me, Sochi, which is in Russia, and also in, you know, they met, they met in Iran. So what we see, they met in the main cities of each of these countries, these three leaders together, basically to be the new leaders of the Middle East. So you've got these three people now in cahoots, in line, in league, in a union that has one thing in common, and that is the destruction of the nation of Israel. They're going to be the invading force in the last days. In the 1970s, again, Iran and Turkey were the best friends of Israel, but Scripture says at the time of the end, they're going to be the mortal enemies. Okay, well, how about the enemies of Israel? Egypt involved in every war, you know, 48, uh, 67, 73. Well, Jordan, Jordan attacking also being uh, against Israel. Where are they? Again, they were the bad guys before. Jordan, 19, uh, first of all, Egypt, 1979. Jordan, 1994. Saudi peace treaty with Israel. So there's been cessation of hostilities. So they are people that are not involved. Okay. How about the Gulf states? Well, we saw last year with President Trump, you've got Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, going into a normalization relationship with Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia was soon to follow, along with some of the other states there in the Middle East. 
So in other words, the normalization with Israel that was long predicted in scripture has taken place and been since Jordan, since Egypt, now the Gulf states who are not involved. But the ones who are involved, and particularly the big three, Turkey, Russia, and Iran, have been working together. And what's really interesting, this is a whole other aside, which we had time to develop this, that we didn't know how this is all going to come about. How in the world is it going to come about that Israel is going to be surprised by this invading force that we see, according to Ezekiel 38.8, um, in the last days? And what we found out is what's going to happen is uh, somehow they're going to have to get closer and closer to the promised land. And what happened? ISIS comes in in 2011 in the Syrian civil war, and they come into Syria and Iraq, take about 20% of the country there. So the countries of Russia, Iran, Turkey, along with the U.S., get rid of them. They had sometimes 20,000 square miles. ISIS had that much territory in these two countries. Now they have none because these other countries came in. But guess what? The U.S. left, but Russia didn't. Turkey didn't, and Iran certainly didn't, and they are there now on Israel's northern border. So if you look across the northern border of Israel today, uh, uh, up to the, you know, if you look further north at their top border there in the Golan Heights, you can see, guess what, Russian outposts that are there, Russian soldiers, Iranian soldiers dressed as Syrian soldiers right there, right now. And again, you can't make this stuff up. So what was not true a few decades ago in the 1970s with respect to the last day's lineup, now it makes sense. It did not make sense to us in the 70s. Egypt, well, Egypt certainly is going to be involved in the last day's invasion. No, 79 peace treaty. Jordan, they've got to be involved. 1994 peace treaty. Turkey would never turn on Israel. Turkey has. Iran, the best friend, now the worst enemy. Sooner or later, the Bible will be exactly what it claims to be, 100% accurate. And so the closer we get to the time of the end, the knowledge will increase. It will make more sense. Now, if that's not enough for you, with the Abraham Accords and all that, the peace treaties in 1979, 1994, this to me here is, is the greatest one of all the illustration I'm about to give you here. A number of years ago, I was invited to a, a, a talk at a prophecy conference in the state of Wisconsin. And they said, we've heard you've been doing some work in uh, talking in the, on the book of Ezekiel. And I had I've been doing a class for about a year and a half on that. And I had 200 pages of notes. And by the way, it is now a book, the Ezekiel 3839 Invasion. You can download it. It's not in print yet. And my wife said, get that one in print. Get that one in print. Everybody wants to get it. I'm, I'm getting to it. You know, I've got all these others i got to get to. But anyway, um, it's there right now. You can download it you know, for free. Ezekiel 38, 39 invasion. But at that time, this is about uh, seven, seven, eight years ago, I think. I, you know, I, I had 200 pages of notes. I started in Ezekiel 33, because one of the things people never do and they should do is start then. The background is way back in 33 to get to 38 and 39 and such like. Anyway, and so they say, okay, we want you to talk on the Ezekiel 38, 39 invasion. Say, fine, you got one whole hour. I thought, great. I got 200 pages of notes. I know I talk fast. I don't talk that fast. I can't get it all done in one hour. What in the world do I do? And I was in a quandary, so here's what I did. Okay, I always try and think out of the box, do something uh, no one else has ever done, or no, and I don't think anyone's done. I never heard anybody doing this. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get my little yellow pad out, not the iPad, the yellow pad, and I'm gonna go through Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, and I'm gonna look at two things. Number one, what Ezekiel assumes the world will be like at the time of the end, 
before the invasion? And number two, once the invasion takes place, who are the players and what's going to happen? So anyway, I start going through the list. I'm going to read you what I came up with here. Again, uh, I have 11 or, uh, 10 or 11 specific things. There are 10 here that be in place before this invasion. Now, this is not rocket science. I'm just reading from the scripture, writing down on my yellow pad what expects to, what the world's going to be like. Remember, this is written 2,650 years ago. Prediction number one, the nation of Israel will exist in the last days. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? Because, you know, they're invading Israel in the last days, so they got to exist. So, okay, there's the assumption that Israel will exist in the last days. Prediction number two from this passage they will have been scattered throughout the world. The people have been scattered. Okay, that was predicted in Scripture. Okay. The number three, however, at some future time, the people return to their ancient homeland. Okay, they're going to come back again after being, uh, we're told, into their ancient homeland. But specifically here, we made this a different point, specifically it will happen in the last days, in the last days. In other words, when Ezekiel's writing, it's not the return from Babylon that we're waiting for. Because remember, they're in Babylon waiting to come back to Jerusalem, as Jeremiah predicted. No, no, this is a future one. In the last days, they're going to return to their ancient homeland, but only in the last days. And number four, the people will return after being away for an awful long time. So again, not the 70-year Babylonian captivity, but a second return from a second exile after being gone for a long time. Prediction number five, the returning numbers will be large, like an army. Okay. Number six, the land which they will return will have been decimated by war. In other words, they're not going to come back to the land of milk and honey. Okay, I'm writing all this down. Number seven, though they return to a desolate land, once back in the land, they're going to create great wealth. They're going to make a land that was desolate. They're going to make it a wealthy land. Okay, that's another prediction. Number eight, when they return, they'll form some type of modern state or some type of political entity. In other words, they won't be just a mob. They'll be there. They'll they'll be attacked as some state official state or that's there. Be, um, the nation of Israel in their homeland will be a, uh, a state. Number nine, their borders will include the mountains of Israel because it's once they get in the mountains of Israel. That's when God gives the whammy to these invading armies. So that, that has to be part of Israeli territory at that time. And number 10, they will come back in unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah, because Ezekiel 39 tells us once God destroys these armies supernaturally, the people will look up and realize that God is dealing with Israel again. So anyway, I'm looking at these. I write all these 10 things down. Okay, this is what the Bible says. What Ezekiel said, God said through Ezekiel, is going to take place in the last days. And this is what the world is going to look like in the last days. Now, have you noticed anything about the 10 events that I mentioned, the 10 predictions? Yeah. Every single one of them is now in place. Every single one. Now, let's take a step back and think about this. So here's Ezekiel in Babylon. Jeremiah, the other prophet, has said the nation's going to come back after 70 years in Babylon, come back to the promised land. It's never happened in the history of humanity, a nation being removed from their land, ever come back. This is talking about a second exile after being gone for a long time returning. And that's precisely what happened. They do exist in these last days. They were scattered throughout the world. They have returned to their ancient homeland after being gone for a long time. Their numbers are huge, like Ezekiel 37 says, like an army. 
The land they returned to has been decimated by war. It wasn't the land of milk and honey that they returned to. But what they did when they returned to the desolate land, uh, they created great wealth. And this is one of the reasons for the invasion, creating great wealth. They formed a modern state, May 14th, 1948, a political entity. Their borders include the mountains of Israel. Now, this one's really interesting because in 1948, when the modern state of Israel was reborn, that was not part of their borders. Israel uh, was a very small nation at that time, very small geographical nation at that time. Jerusalem was divided down the middle. The Golan Heights, the uh, Mount of Olives were not in their territory. So careful Bible students said there's got to be another war because they're going to build a temple on the Temple Mount, and the Temple Mount's in the country called Transjordan at the time. They've got to take that back. They've got to unify Jerusalem. They've got to take uh, you know, the Mount of Olives back because the mountains of Israel are supposedly in their hands when this invasion takes place. Well, cross it off, 1967, the Six-Day War is exactly what happened. Temple Mount was liberated. The East Jerusalem is now in the hands uh, by the Israelis. The Mount of Olives, of course, the Golan Heights and all of that. So the state, now the borders now include the mountains of Israel. And, of course, they have come back without believing in Jesus as the Messiah. They are still in unbelief. So we've got these 10 or 11, depending how you divide it, specific predictions of what the world will be like in the last days. And the writer Ezekiel writing there in Babylon was right on every single one of them. Hmm. Do we see another pattern here, gang? Yes, we do. Not only the pattern of fulfilled predictions in the past come exactly as the scripture said, not only the pattern of the different people who existed in the past, you know, the, that the scripture gives names of, of course, like these throwaway names in Jeremiah, they actually existed. Number two, uh, again, confirm, confirm, confirm what happened. And then in the last days, the days we are living in, what do we see? We see the precise lineup of nations, like we said there, that the Bible predicted. We didn't see it in the 70s. We see it right now. But here in 2021, we not only see the precise lineup, we see exactly what the Bible says the world situation will look like at the time of the end. So why do we call this three indisputable examples that prove the Bible is the word of God? Very simply because no one else could know the future. No one else could have a track record like this. No one else could have prophecies fulfilled in the past in history like we've talked about before. Okay, you mentioned Jesus and the prophecies about Capernaum, uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and of course Tiberius, which he didn't uh, condemn. The archaeological evidence, these six names we said, the throwaway names, minor officials there in Judah at the time of the destruction of the first temple that Jeremiah mentions that of course names have shown up. You know, if these little uh, seals, these little royal seals, seals with their names on very very small but found in the area when the excavation going around the temple mounts taken place in recent years and then of course the um, lineup of the nations in Ezekiel 38 37 38 and 39 precisely as the scripture said okay all these things been fulfilled one after another now you know why God said 2,700 years ago, you have heard, now look at all the evidence, will you not admit that what I say is true? This is just a small, tiny, tiny sample of the events that are there, that the, the evidence that is there, and fulfilled Bible prophecy in the past, in the uh, events that have taken place in the history of Israel, uh, you know, fulfilling that in the archaeological evidence, and also to number three, in the predictions about the last days. 
Okay, I'm gonna close with the story here that I think puts it all into perspective. In uh, 1976, I've been to Israel 18 times. It was my first trip. I was with Josh McDowell. He's making a movie called More Than a Carpenter. And uh, we were given kind of the key to the country. It was really a, a blessing that we had being there. And one of the things we were able to do is this is 1976, three years after the Yom Kippur War, we were meet, met with, I think he was the deputy mayor of the city of Jerusalem at the time. I, I can't remember his first name. I'll call him, I think his name was Michael. A very well-dressed British guy with a neatly trimmed beard. Um, and they said, you can ask any question you want about Israel. And this is the guy, the go-to guy with the answer. And so uh, we were there, and Josh started asking him the questions, why we should support Israel. And this guy had a great sense of humor. He said, well, you, you Americans are always for the underdog. Israel is so small, you can't even write the name in the country. You have to write Israel out in the Mediterranean Sea. We're, he said, we're, we're surrounded by 110 million Arabs, and there's this, you know, there's, again, this is in the 70s. There's like 3 million of us at that time. And so you should be for the underdog. And kept asking him questions, question, question after question. And finally, he turned to me and says, Don, do you have a question for Michael? And I said, I certainly do. Could you, Michael, could you please answer this question for me? I said, in the history of your country, you've been twice removed from the homeland and twice brought back. In uh, 1967, when the city of Jerusalem, was, before 67, when it was divided, halfway before Jerusalem was liberated, the um, half of the city was Transjordan. The other half was in, a, uh, you know, in, in Israel's control. They would tell us that the evening news that was done from East Jerusalem from, went into uh, West Jerusalem, and the news broadcaster, the presenter, ended every newscast with this. And for you Israelis, every last man, woman, and child of you will die. We are going to drive you in the Mediterranean. That's how they end the newscast, from 48 to 67, right then. But I said, in 67, you liberate the city of Jerusalem, okay? And uh, then again, in 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, which you should have existed, if Henry Kissinger hadn't stopped it, you were moving towards Damascus, Syria in the north, and Cairo, you know, Egypt in the south. Uh, again, every time you attack, your, uh, your country you know, gets bigger and bigger. In fact, there's a, a shirt I saw. I wish I would have gotten it one time in Israel. It said this, attack us again. We need the land. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So I said, Michael, how do you explain something like that? You know, you've been removed twice, brought back twice, no nation but removed once. You've got through these wars. Every time you win the war, you fought the first war with World War I weapons in 48, and yet you, you won that one. Is it because you're the greatest army in the world, or is maybe something supernatural going on in your country? And I will never forget his answer. He's rubbing his beard. And he says, you know, you're right. We're kind of like a dead man that's come back to life. Now, I, want, I don't know if he's thinking of Ezekiel 37, like dead bones living. But he said this. He said, you go across this country and you talk to people. He said, they'll tell you we're here because we're the greatest army in the world. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are here just simply because of the greatness of us. He said, don't you believe it for one second. He said, at the time, the Western Wall, Temple Mount, was liberated in June of 1967. Of the three million Israelis, one million people were either at or on the way to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, to give thanks to God for finally reuniting the city of Jerusalem. And so he said, yes, something supernatural is guiding our nation. He admitted that. Well, from Scripture, what do we know? Well, we know what it is because at the time of the end, the knowledge will increase. We expect to see these things happen. 
So again, the bottom line is there is indisputable evidence for anyone who wants to look at it that the Bible is the word of God. It's told us about past events that came to pass. It's told us about past prophecies that were fulfilled. And it's talk about the unknown future that right now we see lined up perfectly, perfectly right in front of our very eyes. So we don't have to exercise blind faith, do we? We... (laughs) All we have to do is open our eyes and look at the evidence. So here it is. God has spoken. Are we listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the evidence that's there, the evidence that we have of the prophecies already fulfilled in history, of those cities around the Sea of Galilee that are testimonies to this day of the judgment of these people who did not believe in the Lord Jesus and of the one city who was not condemned of still being there. Of the... um, archaeology of the ancient mysteries that have been solved, Lord, of these people that do exist, like the throwaway names that Jeremiah mentions there in his book, and the in the destruction of Jerusalem, that show us that we are dealing with accuracy. We're not dealing with mythology. And again today, Lord, as we open our eyes and we see the lineup of the nations against Israel that weren't lined up a few years ago are now lined up perfectly, and of course, the stage of the world, as Ezekiel put so long ago, what it's going to look like is exactly what we see here in 2021. Lord, we thank you that all we have to do is open our eyes because you've given us so much evidence because as you predicted so long ago through Daniel, the wise will understand. And who are the wise? Those who take Bible prophecy seriously and take it at face value, believe it says what it means and means what it says. And we see it right now. And Lord... We are forever thankful that, is, that we are seeing this. We are humbled by this. We, are, we don't know what words to express that we're seeing things our grandparents, great-grandparents longed to see but didn't see. Thank you for letting us live in this time. So let us be faithful representatives of you for such a time as this as we're getting closer and closer to the end. And we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.